Thank you, BJ. If you noticed, one of the themes that came through our songs that we were just singing loud and, loudly and clearly, another, and, and another aspect, uh, even in BJ's prayer, is the theme of hope. We are people of hope. Now, sometimes I hear people refer to uh, uh, a plan A world and a plan B world. In, in plan A, the plan A world, that's where God's will is done. In uh, plan B world, God's will somehow got derailed. And we're just trying to hold on uh, and the cope until he returns and fixes it. So in, in this scenario, we actually live in a plan B world while we long for and we sing hymns about the plan A. In my plan A world, my plan A world, Democrats and Republicans listen respectfully to each other and then make wise decisions. In my plan A world, there are no pandemics, no economic meltdowns, no abusive racist police, no violent looters posing as protesters. Instead, people sit down and talk. That's my plan A world. In my plan A world, my children, my children, learn the big lessons of life by solving relatively little problems. So the tu tuition is f fairly low. In my planning world, Betsy and I enjoy perfect health until Jesus returns when I'm 72. Or, if Jesus tarries, that I remain absolutely healthy until age 96 when I drop dead from a painless heart attack while preaching here at SNBC, scaring the rest of you to death, but then you have a potluck and plant me out by the pavilion. All good. That's my plan A world. Oh, how sad it is that we live in a plan B world. Okay, let's be clear about this. Biblically, there is no plan A or plan B. We are now living out God's plan. In this important sense, God did not get surprised and say, oops, plan B. He is even now accomplishing his eternal will, working all details together for eternal good. You remember when Jacob died and Joseph was speaking to his brothers in Genesis 50 verse 20, he said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God, same event, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. In other words, what Joseph was saying was that God had other purposes, eternal purposes, for permitting Joseph's suffering that no one knew at that time. So Peter is writing to Christians who are beginning to suffer persecution. Now, there had been other episodes of persecution. They had been regional. They had been focused. But Peter is wanting to make sure that his readers don't even start to begin to think that God is in heaven, wringing his hands saying, oops, didn't see that coming. Let's move on to plan B. Now, Peter is saying, this is all a part of God's plan. Now, we've talked about the background for 1 Peter uh, before. 
You know the background. As the church was growing in the empire, there was persecution. But over time, over time, the Roman, I'll call them the media, the means by which communication took place in Rome, the Roman citizens came to the conclusion that Christians were not just quaint, they were socially dangerous. And the reason why is because uh, they were not involved in the worship of the gods and were bringing bad things onto Rome. Now, we get that. We understand that case being made because it's being made right now against Christians and scattering momentum. Social workers in some parts of our country are appointed to parents claimed, claiming that they're guilty of child abuse when they teach their children that Jesus is the only way or that marriage is between a man and a woman. That's child abuse, according to some. And that we're going to hear that more and more. We, we get that. We see how that can happen. So in ancient Rome, Christianity was labeled as socially dangerous. Now, uh, I have a question for you. How many of you have heard of the Antonine Plague? The Antonine Plague. Okay, nobody. John Reniger reminded me of it. This plague devastated the Roman Empire. It was a pandemic under the co-rulership of Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus, two names that you may remember from the movie Gladiator. Um, now, it was, the plague was named for Aurelius's family, the Antoninus family. According to ancient historians, the disease killed over 5 million people. And, and estimates, hard to, hard to know what the estimates, who is making them, but between 2,000 and 5,000 people a day died during this plague. The symptoms were described uh, by the uh, physician Galen very graphically. Uh, whoever caught the disease either died within two weeks or recovered. And uh, basically what happened was this. Oh, and by the way, kind of interesting, the History Channel indicates, and this was, this is before, this is written years ago, that uh, modern scholars uh, thought that the plague originated in China. The Antonine Plague has been cited by historians as the uh, major catalyst for the destabilization of the Roman Empire. And here's the thing, Marcus Aurelius and others blamed the Christians for the plague because they're not involved, they angered the gods, they're not involved in Roman worship, not participating in the state religion. So persecution of Christians began to intensify. And I'm reading from this article on the History Channel, Quote, the Christians, however, became primary caregivers at this time, nursing the afflicted without regard for their own safety. As a result, more people converted to Christianity. Unquote. Do you get that? Do you get this? The believers fulfilled exactly what Peter is saying to do. They did it. They did it. By the way, Christianity is socially dangerous in the sense that it threatens social sins. But one of the points that is made by this passage is that when Jesus returns, all accusations against faithful followers of Jesus will be exposed as lies. The public slander, the social verdicts, they'll all be overturned. God, the judge, will set the record straight. But meanwhile... 
The Holy Spirit inspired Peter to write these words. Concerned, Peter was concerned about how we as believers think about these things and how we respond to life when things don't go the way that we think they should. I said two weeks ago that verses 13 through 16 are sort of a hinge passage that transitions into the last part of the epistle, uh, which has to do with persecution and suffering and living under that. The, the, the thing is, you can't simply read this passage and say, oh, that's nice. Those are interesting thoughts. You can't, you, you can't be passive about this. So let's review the context a little bit. In the context so far, in First Peter, we're in First Peter 3, but so far, Peter has applied his teaching on persecution and how to respond it, to it to being a slave, to a master who's hostile to Christianity, to being a wife of an unbelieving husband who is also hostile to Christianity, and to the absolute unfairness at every possible level of Jesus suffering on the cross for our sins, which was indeed God's plan. But as we said, the pattern for how we are to respond was set by Jesus. He is the template. Look back in chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And we talked about what that term example meant, the, the, the pattern, the template, the under letters, uh, how to respond when we're wrong. We called it tracing Christ. And then Peter says in chapter 3, verse 8, when he Let's kind of catch up with our context. After Peter gets to this point in chapter 3, verse 8, he says this. To sum up, or if I could paraphrase, now exactly how do you trace Christ? To sum up, let all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Each one of these virtues having a counterpart in the life of Jesus. Because this is how you trace Christ. This is how you follow Jesus. How many church squabbles, disagreements with people in our own church? How many church squabbles would be avoided if people were harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble? How many marriages would be saved, would be healed, if people were harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble? How much church, I'm, I'm sorry, how much social unrest would be diffused if people were harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble. And then, and then Peter continues his point in the next verse with a negative and a positive. Verse 9, here's the negative. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. As we said, this is just radically countercultural. In the first century world, the norm was retaliation, not reconciliation. Instead, he gives the positive, but giving a blessing instead. And two weeks ago, we, said, we studied what this meant, giving a blessing instead. And the idea is that you bless people by bringing them to God in prayer, not only to avoid retaliating in kind, which is hard, not only to treat them kindly, which is harder still, but now you bring them before God in prayer, not clenching your jaw, but genuine prayer for the eternal good of that person who is hostile to you. In Luke 6, verse 28, Jesus says, Bless those who curse you. And then he says, Pray for those who mistreat you. Bless and pray. 
Same two ideas. Peter explains why as the verse continues. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. First of all, you're blessed because when you pray for them and treat them kindly, you, you defuse the situation in your own heart so that it's no longer your problem. Secondly, uh, you, you are blessed because it's evident, evidence of the Holy Spirit's work within you because it's a, I'm getting my words mixed here. And I don't even have a mask on. It's a result of the fruit of the Spirit. And you're blessed thirdly because your eternal reward in heaven is increasing every day that you trace Christ. Now, let's continue in our review. In verse 10, the word for introduces the reason why we don't retaliate. The Bible says, now, if you remember that two weeks ago I mentioned, I mentioned this, that when musicals were popular, the phrase was common that the character bursts into song, bursts into song. And, and what I said then is, is a pattern that is so common in First Peter that we could say Peter bursts into Scripture. He's just always bursting into Scripture. So he bursts into Scripture and he quotes Psalm 34 in verses 10 through 12. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend their prayer. But the face of the Lord, you get the word picture here, eyes, ear, face. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now he's quoting here from Psalm 34, which has, he's already quoted it in chapter 2. In Psalm 34, David writes this when he's fleeing from Saul and then he's fleeing from Abimelech as well. He is just an alien and a stranger with no homeland, uh, trying to survive and trying to live for God, but it's hard. Does that sound familiar? That's what Peter's readers are all about. That's their situation. And Peter's counsel is clear. When you're treated badly, even misunderstood intentionally, you've just been handed a witnessing opportunity. You don't respond out of the old man. You respond out of grace. You bless them and pray for them. You make the choice to respond in a way that traces Christ. And as I mentioned before, every time that you do that, you are growing to be more like Jesus Christ. Now, that's where we stopped two weeks ago. Now, look at the words again in this text, verses 10 through 12. Look at those words again from Psalm 34. Do you desire life? Do you desire to love and see good days? Do you want to turn away from evil and do good? Do you want to seek peace and pursue it? Do you want the things that God wants for you? The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. It refers to His providential care. The ears of the Lord are open to the cries that we offer Him in prayer. And then He uses His face, this phrase, the face of the Lord. This is a Hebrew expression for the collective attributes of God. In this case, God's attributes, His countenance, His character, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The idea of being against is not that God's doing a mean face at you. That God is glaring at you. No. To have God's face against you means that God's face 
is turned away from you. The, the face that has beauty and love and grace and compassion and kindness flowing from that countenance is turned away from you forever. Do you remember the blessing that we frequently use here as we close our services? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His what? Face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. If you want to see His face shine on you, if you want that, then you are His child. If you do not want that, if, you, if for some reason you don't want to be fully exposed and loved, absorbed into His love, then either, number one, you don't know Him, or number two, there's some sin in your life that you need to deal with that's separating you from His presence. One day, Revelation 22 says that followers of Jesus will one day, we will see His face. But until then, and back to our text in 1 Peter 3, Peter's concerned with how we think about these things, how we respond to life in a world where things do not go the way that we think that they should. And strangely, unexpectedly, Peter's focus is not on how to avoid those things, how to avoid persecution, uh, how to avoid any of those things, how to avoid suffering. Peter's focus is on how we are to live for Jesus under those things. Verse 13, he says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And we said before, that's a rhetorical question. The expected answer was no one. <laughs> Just a, a handful of years later, the entire church would have responded, Nero. And then later they would have responded, Domitian, Trajan, uh, 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 Decius, Valerian, and Marcus Aurelius. Definitely. Peter knows that persecution exists and will get worse. So what, is, what Peter is saying is the same thing that Paul said in Romans 8. If God is for us, who is against us? Some versions translate that inaccurately because they're supplying a verb who can be against us. That's not what it says. That verb's been supplied. If God is for us, who is against us? The point is there's plenty against us. But make a list. Here are all the things, all the people, all the circumstances, all the pain, all the suffering that is against us. You put that down in one column under who is against us, and then over here you have this column, who is for us, and you put one word, God. Contest over. That is his point. Meanwhile, though, the truth is that we are now living in an environment of hostility, suspicion, danger, that could erupt any time. Uh, in the first century, it could erupt empire-wide. Today, it could erupt as well. It could erupt regionally or uh, locally. And Christians were, are, and will be in the crosshairs. But verse 14 says, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. You remember where to trace Christ and Jesus said, blessed are you who suffer for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, Peter bursts into Scripture again 
This time it's no longer in the Psalms. This time it's in the prophets. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 8, where Isaiah is exhorting the believers in Israel not to fear the impending invasion the way that unbelievers fear that impending invasion. Peter wasn't saying it's not going to happen. He was saying it, I'm sorry, Isaiah was not saying it's not going to happen. He was saying it was going to happen. It's just that you do not need to be troubled by what troubles most people. You are to live your life in the eternal view and don't fear what most people fear. If you fear men, if you're intimidated by persecution, then you're looking at life from the temporal view, not the eternal view. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So don't fear. Don't be troubled. Don't, don't let suffering take the edge off of your testimony. Instead, use your suffering as an opportunity for witness. How do you do this? This is hard. This is very hard. This is something that requires a major paradigm shift in how we think about this life and eternity. How do you, how do, you do that? His first point so far has been negative. Do not fear. But his second point is positive. Look at verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now, if I... I, I do have to stop right here and make a comment because Peter is still actually referring to Isaiah 8 where in Isaiah 8, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is sanctified in their hearts. So he's equating Jesus as Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord, the constant refrain in the New Testament. He is the God of the Old Testament, the covenant God. So it is Jesus whom you sanctify, set apart as your, ob as your object of, of uh, reverence and of worship above all others. So sanctify Christ, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. The author of Hebrews, who's also writing about Christians who are suffering and who are under persecution, describes it this way, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Hebrews translate, the most often translation is looking unto Jesus in Hebrews 12. It means to rivet your eyes, fixing your eyes on Jesus. That is we're tracing Christ, right? Fixing your eyes there. Uh, Peter continues, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Now, this verse is just packed full of all kinds of things, and I only read the first half. I want to make a few observations about it. First of all, I just want to say that the word you, the pronoun you, is not singular, it is plural. Who is the you the hope that is in you. Well, he's referring to categories of people who are hurting that he's already described. Slaves with twisted masters. Remember the word scoliosis that we referred to a couple of weeks ago. Slaves with twisted masters. Wives with unsaved, hostile husbands. All believers who are suffering or who will be suffering. And he's just grouping all followers of Jesus together. No exceptions from hardship because that's going to come. So, that's who the you refers to. Secondly, what does he mean when he says, to everyone who asks? Peter's referring to people who are watching. In fact, who may be a part of your problem. But they're watching you because truth is, they're kind of mystified over what makes you tick. 
Third, what do these spectators notice? The hope that is in you. And I find this a little puzzling too. Because he doesn't say the love that is in you. He doesn't say the faith that is in you. Both of which would make sense. Instead, he's referring to the observable outcome of the gospel on display when you live with suffering. What bubbles up to the top? is your hope. You know your future. You know where you're going. You are living not for the temporal, but for the eternal. And that knowledge gives you stability in the hard times. Now I'm going to return to the word defense in just a moment. But look at the attitude, the last part of verse 15 as it continues. Yet with gentleness and reverence, or, or respect. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Good words for these days, isn't it? So uh, Proverbs 15.1. Don't assume, by the way, my friends, that you're brilliant. I mean, you ever wonder why your brilliant arguments are not effective? Uh, why you, you, they don't persuade people? Instead, what he's saying is, God will do the work of changing hearts, minds, attitudes. You can't do that anyway. That's not our job. The more we realize that, I think there's great freedom here. Our job is to be faithful to him. So what he's saying is, okay, they look at you. They don't know what makes you tick. And they lift up your hope. When they lift up your hope, what's underneath? What is it that they see? They see the gospel. That's what's visible. And yet, here's the thing. We have the what your hope is observable to the world and we have the how your you share your hope with gentleness and respect and in verse 16 says and keep a good conscience so that the in the thing in which you are slandered which means they're intentionally speaking maliciously about you that that will happen those who revile your good behavior in christ will be put to shame at the end you will not be put to shame. They will be put to shame. When? Well, the text is actually not clear about when. It could mean that unbelieving persecutors are watchers who are looking at how you live, how you suffer, and, and, and they are impacted by the way that you live, and it makes them rethink their lives. And the Holy Spirit uses that to bring them to Christ. It may mean that. I mean, we've seen that happen. Remember the thief on the cross who rebukes the other thief and says, we deserve to be here. He doesn't. Then he turns to Jesus, remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. Remember the, at the foot of the cross, the soldier who said, truly, this man was a son of God. So we, we see that that can happen. Or it may refer to the end times, judgment day, where it will certainly be true that those who revile your good behavior in Jesus Christ will be put to shame as they stand before God's judgment. Whichever Peter has in mind, both are true. But all of this assumes two things. It assumes, number one, your faith is not your private possession. You are open about being a follower of Jesus. Number two, you, you plan in advance. You commit in advance to how you're going to respond when you're badly treated. Have you ever fantasized about an argument with someone 
and you have the perfect put down for them. You know that fantasy? You, you know what you, I wish I'd said? Or if she says this to me, or if he says that, I'm going to say this. And you kind of fan. What he's saying is, okay, what I'm saying is, if you're going to fantasize about something, you start fantasizing about how to speak to them, respond with gentleness and respect. You start thinking in advance, okay, if they do this, as a follower of Jesus, what would Jesus have me say back to them? How, does, how am I to trace Christ here? I am, I am pretty good about fantasizing about great put-downs. Okay? I mean, you see, the, you see the put-down culture on the news all the time. Uh, you, you see it on social media all the time. That's not good for our souls. But tracing Christ is. So if you look back over these verses, here what, here's what we see so far. Just summarize verses 13 through 16 so far. Think in terms of they and you. They and you. They, verse 14, they try to intimidate you. They cause you suffering when you're doing the right thing. They slander you. They revile your good behavior. But you, you, on the other hand, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. You be ready to explain the gospel that undergirds your hope. It's underneath your hope. You be gentle and respectful. You keep a good conscience. You exemplify good behavior. And they, in God's time, will be, will be put to shame. Now, I want to back up to a word that's in verse 15. Because what we've seen so far is just amazing. This is an amazing passage. But there's a word in verse 15 uh, that uh, I want to address for a little while. It's the word defense, to give a, a, a reason for the, uh, to give a defense for the hope that's within you. Sometimes it's translated to give a reason for the hope that is in you. It's the Greek word apologia. We get the word apologetics from it, our English word apologize. Only in English, when we say apologize, we mean by that, I am sorry, I was wrong. In Greek, it meant exactly the opposite. I am right, and here are my reasons. So it meant exactly the opposite. Um, there is a discipline of, of Christian thought called apologetics. I have nine shelves of books. I counted them yesterday. I have nine shelves of books on apologetics. I love that. On philosophy, worldviews, atheism, doubt, postmodernism, comparative religions, creationism, uh, cultural apologetics, cults, fads like the Da Vinci Code, uh, the Gnostic scriptures, all, all that kind of stuff, on and on. And I've always been fascinated by it. It's always been a part of my life in, in teaching. Um, if, if you uh, look at the, I, I wrote the article on apologetics in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, and uh, I tried to, I tried to change to nudge the ter terminology to change in the field a little bit with uh, changing using some different terms with different uh, categories, and uh, it did not work. So that was that was my attempt. Um, but reasoned arguments that defend the faith warm my. They just do. I'm wired that way. Many people have intellectual doubts about their faith, and uh, they hold on emotionally or with their wills to Jesus. Uh, I'm the opposite. My doubts are emotional. And when I feel empty, it's the intellectual arguments that bring me back around and keep me anchored. So I'm, I'm just thrilled 
with what I see actually in, in the culture of, of academia in some ways, because the, the philosophy of religion scholars who are writing a cluster of them at Yale University and a lot, lot of Christian philosophers, they're just, just expanding and, and blossoming in the academic world. Christian, evangelical Christians who are teaching philosophy. Um, the, uh, there's a cluster of evangelicals who are doing amazing research at Cambridge University um, on uh, the, in, the uh, integrity of the Bible, defending that. I love that stuff. I love to read that stuff. It's, it's a lot of fun uh, for me, at least. Uh, and, and by the way, this is also why I want all of our, I, I want our young people to be exposed to that. That's why I want them to attend the summit program that we have uh, recommended uh, for many of you. That's kind of a boot camp for the brain. So uh, I'm all into that stuff. And you would, if you knew me, you would, anybody who knows me would know once I got to verse 15, I was going to talk about apologetics. Let's defend the faith. Let's defend the faith. But according to Peter, that's not the point. According to Peter, good, solid arguments will not gain a hearing. What gains a hearing is your godly life. There used to be a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Great book. But what Peter is saying is that the evidence that demands a verdict is your life. It's easy for me to write an article on apologetics. It's much harder to live it out. I remember when one of my professors was lecturing to a very liberal, hostile crowd, and uh, uh, he was very surprised uh, that what gained the attention of his audience was uh, not the work that he had done at Harvard, but instead the work that he had done in uh, adopting and fostering children. That's when they started listening to him. Living out our faith. You see, don't you, that it's your life that is the book that's read that makes the difference. I cannot tell you how often I've read books that uh, quote verse 15 in isolation as a justification to study apologetics. What Peter is saying here is that we need to have an apologetics class, so let's start an apologetics class. No, what Peter is saying, if you look at it in context, is first you need to start an ethics class. <laughs> How to live out the gospel. Not to defend the faith, but to live the faith. It's not your argumentation that's persuasive. It's your behavior that opens the door and sets the table in order to be able to give an account for the hope that is in you. And there's something very important here. Peter is not just saying ethics precedes apologetics. He's not just saying that. Drill down deeper. Here's what he's saying. Are you ready for this? I want you to hear this very closely. Jesus-saturated suffering precedes apologetics. Jesus-saturated suffering. Jesus-saturated suffering precedes apologetics. This is not a pleasant challenge. But until Jesus returns, until he returns, every single one of us will get sick and suffer and die. 
And the very worst thing possible would be for me or Lewis not to prepare you for that. Not to prepare you to live from the eternal perspective. Betsy and I were walk, uh, out walking uh, yesterday and we started talking about this passage and uh, per- persecution and suffering. And, and then we went from that to talking about our aches and pains because it seems like we do that a little bit more now than we used to. And she made the observation, you know, uh, the older we get, I think it's our bodies that persecute us. <laughs> okay, well, you know, I hadn't really thought about it that way, but that's pretty true. It feels that way anyway in this fallen world. I have all kinds of stories that I I could share with you about the idea of Jesus-saturated suffering and about how that opens the door for the gospel. But I'm going to share a testimony with you from a close friend. And I shared this years ago, a few years ago. Some of you may remember this if you're an old-timer here. Uh, You know I've been involved, uh, that Betsy and I have been involved with the Officers Christian Fellowship actually for longer than, than when we started this church. We've been teaching with that group uh, almost every year. And uh, we've become close friends with many, many uh, career military people that we uh, keep in contact with and we uh, see frequently in in some cases. One young man that we uh, uh, became close to was a a young lieutenant named uh, Eric Kale. Eric was a young lieutenant. He was visiting Gigi Graves. Gigi was the... uh, a receptionist at uh, White Sulphur Springs, a retreat center, and Eric would come and see her. And then uh, that relationship developed. And by the way, I have a picture of Eric and Gigi on my door if you want to see it, my office. Um, and uh, they got married. He was a young captain. And then fast forward a few years, uh, now uh, Eric is a, a full colonel, and he's supervising the Leadership Research Center at West Point. They know leadership at West Point. And he's over that research. Uh, he's, re- he's gotten his Ph.D. in organizational psychology by this time and has published on leadership in the Harvard Business Review and a series of articles in the Washington Post. And he wanted, he wanted me to write a book with him on uh, leadership from a biblical perspective because he said everything that he found in his research is right there in the Bible. Um, But then the cancer came. He was given three months to live. And uh, I'm going to, the reason why I'm telling you Eric's testimony, I'm repeating this from a few years ago, is because it mirrors our passage. And if this is one case where in my plan A world, this would not have happened. Uh, He resigned from the army moved to Texas, because of his physical conditioning, his three months uh, stretched into six months. uh, I'm sorry, 16 months. We did a lot of talking and emailing over those 16 months, and I'm going to read you some excerpts from those emails. Quote, My confidence was always grounded in my own physical abilities just as much as as in my faith in God. This fight is different. For the first time in my life, I don't have my physical strength to rely on. And he wrestled with discouragement. He wrote, quote, There are moments when you just raise your eyes skyward and utter, You know, Lord, some good news would be very welcome about right now. But then he wrote, 
This is the first time I've relied on God's love for me when I haven't been in a position of physical strength. It's not an easy position for me, but Christ now owns me in a new and deeper way. It's hard to describe, but it feels good, yet exhausting. A few months later, the real answer to prayer is not simply that I'm still here or even how I'm doing medically. It's rather who I'm becoming on this journey. Our human nature fixes our attention on the end state when the purpose lies in the miles of trial. And one day he wrote about routine. This has been a great week. I'm halfway through treatment. Emma graduated middle school with significant honors. Jake is enjoying having his own apartment at Texas A&M. I got to conduct a leadership seminar for a senior leadership of a, of a large communications company. Gigi is more beautiful than ever, and Lonesome Dove is on TV in the evenings. And then he wrote me this about his cancer. I see it as an opportunity and not a crisis, almost a mission, if you will, to live out what I believe without fear and hesitation. I don't like it when people are, say they are sorry. I love it when they say, fight hard, you've got this. For me, I've got this refers to how I fight, not the outcome. Eric gave me an illustration while we were sitting on the uh, porch at White Sulphur Springs uh, one summer. Well, actually, that last summer. Um, the illustration that he gave me is something, and some of you may remember this because I've used it with you before. I got it from Eric. An illustration about white rope and blue tape. It's become part of our family lore. Imagine, if you will, a white rope that extends out into eternity. And somewhere along that white rope, that goes from eternity to eternity, there is a band of blue tape. And this was Eric's illustration. Um, our lives are like a small piece of blue tape on the eternity of white rope. The width of the blue tape is the span of your life. So some people have very wide blue tape and some people have very narrow blue tape. For right now, you are living in your blue tape. You can't help that. You have no choice in that matter. But here's the choice you do have. Are you living for the blue tape or for the white rope, for eternity? Our struggle, he said, is that we elevate the blue tape issues as if they were the most important thing we'll ever do. And if things go wrong, we anguish and carry on as if there were no white rope. By the way, I said this is a part of our family lore. When our daughter Beth had her third baby, uh, third child, um, she broke her leg. And for seven weeks, uh, she could not carry around her newborn on, with the crutches. And she was describing, and she was living in Wisconsin at the time, uh, and she was describing it, and, and then she paused and she said, you know, but that's a blue tape issue. Eric said that the blue tape was his cancer. How he dealt with it, that's the white rope. Near the end, he wrote, how I run the race, not, finish, not the finish line, has far more to do with giving God the glory. He will tell me when my race is done. It's my job just to run. I told Eric that I loved him, and he wrote back a few other things. 
uh, or wrote him a few other things, and he wrote back, quote, trying to run through the finish line, brother. Not to, but through the finish line. I wrote back, I'm praying that you'll run the race with endurance, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Within seconds, he wrote me back, and this was the last email I received from him. Is it crazy that I can't wait to see him? So after about 48 years of blue tape, Colonel Eric Kale entered the white rope. As a result of his life, when I went to West Point to conduct his funeral, I was told uh, by the chaplains there that because it was summer, there would be at the most maybe a couple hundred people, 150, 200 people there. But because of the testimony of tracing Christ, because of his life, I was able to preach the gospel to an unexpected crowd of about 800 people. I was able to explain in detail to a very attentive audience the hope that was in him. So white rope or blue tape? Whether it's persecution or a hard marriage or chronic illness, a rebellious child, a horrible boss, losing a job, a job that you hate, mental illness, the list goes on and on and on. As long as we're in this blue tape, life will have its joys, but it will also have its miseries. But it's only blue tape. <laughs> As followers of Jesus, we have to be aware that we have spectators who are watching how we run the race. Now, they are living their blue tape. They are living their story. But they're watching how we are living our story. And they need Jesus. So how are you running your race? As your brother in Christ, not Gary, but Peter, wants you to make sure that you sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's the white rope. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and respect and keep a good conscience so that in the thing that you are slandered, those who slander your be good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the examples that we see embedded in Scripture and the examples of the cloud of witnesses surrounding us, surrounding us. And Lord, I pray that we too would be faithful to run our race with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, not from the temporal perspective, but from the eternal view. This is our prayer in Jesus.